So if you don't know me or have you forgotten, my name is Jason Brown, and I'll be up here preaching it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, my name is Neil Payne, and, and uh, Jason Brown preached last week, and inevitably somebody comes up to me after, like a week later or something, and says, man, you did so good preaching. And I guess we wear the same type of shoes or something, because people get us confused pretty, pretty frequently. But again, my name is Neil Payne, and we're going we're gonna to continue the morning in prayer. Um, and we're going to do something that we do pretty much every single Sunday without fail. Is we're going to pray for a church in our community, and we're going to pray for an unreached people groups. So we should have a slide up there, Danielle. Beautiful. Our local church this morning will be Holland Terrace, uh, led by uh, Dr. Chet Haney and his wife, Terry. He's got three daughters, three son-in-laws, nine grandkids. And then our unreached people groups uh, this morning will be the Burmese people. And I feel like every time I get up here to preach, we talk about uh, the South Asian people, specifically in Myanmar. Uh, man, my heart is just burdened uh, for the Burmese people, I would say. This is, a, this is a people group that I've prayed for most in my life, so um, it'll, it's, it's fitting this morning. 31 million people, 383,000. They are 0.35% Christian out of all those people, and they're actually only 0.08% evangelical Christian, um, so they're, they are extremely suppressed in their government. I've had, uh, I've had several friends go over there, um, and they've been driving down the road and had to throw out a bag full of Bibles into the ditch because they were getting chased by the Burmese you know, cops. And then they had to sneak back in the middle of the night just to grab those Bibles so they could pass them out. So it's an extremely, extremely oppressive place, even though it is beautiful in the jungles, with beautiful rivers running through it. So uh, they definitely, uh, we definitely need to join them in prayer. Uh, their main religion is Buddhism and a little bit of Shintoism. So let's go ahead and go uh, to the throne room and pray for these people. Um, Father God, just thank you so much for Highland Terrace, God. Thank you for giving us uh, such an amazing partner in the gospel just right down the road, God. I just ask that you are preparing uh, that congregation this morning or have already prepared them this morning uh, as Dr. Haney brings uh, your beautiful word to that people, God. We just pray that, uh, that there be worship in that room, God, that, that you fill your Holy Spirit up in that place, God, that they love you and glorify you this morning and that you meet them exactly where they are, Father. Uh, we pray for uh, Dr. Haney's family as they worship you as well, God. We pray that that worship be bountiful. Um, and God, we just pray... Um, for what you're doing in that place. Uh, let us know how Crosspoint Fellowship can come alongside of Highland Terrace uh, if, it more, if it be more than just prayer, God. Um, but just thank you so much for giving us those partners in the gospel. God, just thank you again uh, for creating the nations. God, we are so diverse. Um, we are so interesting in our different cultures and where we are, God. Um, and you created this beautiful place called Myanmar, um, filled with jungle and, and beautiful rivers and interesting creatures, God. Um, but we also come burdened knowing that the Burmese people, Father, are just lost. God, and we pray that this morning that you get glory in that place, God. We pray that uh, those who love you and serve you more than the 0.08% evangelical Christians, God, um, just have an outpouring of you to their neighbors, to their friends, God. We ask that you protect them against the government oppression, Father. We pray that more and more see your glory each and every day. God, that, that believing in Hinduism, Father, um, believing in Buddhism, believing in Shintoism, uh, just is not going to do the trick, Father. 
We pray that you get glory there this very morning. God, help us to be a generation that's burdened for people that are lost, God. Help us to be a generation that raise our children to go, um, to, to be your shining light in a dark, dark, dark place, God. Um, but ultimately, we pray for those um, who are believing in you there in Burma. We pray for strength, God. We pray for strength for them. God, be with us this morning as we open up your word, as we uh, just enjoy you, God. We pray that you get glory. And just like we prayed for Highland Terrace, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit be all in this place, God. Teach us, mold us, guide us, direct us, and help us know what it means to worship you. God, we love you, we love you, we love you. It's in your holy, heavenly name we pray. Amen. Awesome, awesome. So uh, here's what the morning really kind of looks like. If you haven't noticed, we've got this beautiful greenery. We've got all these amazing candles. We had an Advent reading. Um, it's Advent season. Now, if you grew up like I did or you have a different church background, Advent might look very different for you. So I'm just going to quickly go over what Advent looks like and what it'll look like here at Crosspoint Fellowship. That way we're all on the same page. Then we're going to read a passage, and we're going to kind of expose that passage. After that, I've got a few nice, tidy application points that are tidy-ish. Definitely cheesy, but it'll be fine. We'll have a good time anyway. And then lastly, we'll finish with a supper, just like we do every week. Um, and so that's kind of what the morning's going to look like. So starting off with Advent, Advent-specific. And again, we come from all different backgrounds, so this will be good to just kind of reorient us for what's going on here. And instead of me making up a definition of Advent, I'm going to go with Matt Chandler's definition of Advent. Uh, he wrote, or him and his wife, uh, Lauren, wrote a devotional, um, an Advent devotional that's fantastic and actually kind of follows exactly what we're doing here at Crosspoint. So instead of reinventing the wheel, I'm going to go ahead and read that. Matt says, Advent is preparing for Christmas rather than celebrating Christmas. It is about stepping into the shoes of the Israelites longing and crying out for a Messiah to come. It is about reflecting on our sin and our shortcomings and our desperate need for a Savior. It is about looking around at our broken world and hoping for a second coming of Jesus. And when, when that day of Christmas actually comes, the celebration of Jesus' birth becomes that much more spectacular. This season isn't what our culture would lead us to believe. It isn't about individualism or consumerism. It is about recognizing the weight of sin personally, corporately, and cosmically, and understanding why we need Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, to dwell among us, restoring and reconciling creation back to the Father by the Spirit, celebrating the Son of God coming as a gift, not to serve or not to be served, but to serve. We respond out of praise and gratitude, using this season to serve others. So regardless of what tradition you were actually raised in, Advent will be a very significant part of our church this year. It will be extremely significant. We are basically um, anticipating God's promise to bring a Savior back in the day, and also looking forward to the Savior coming again. We are going to celebrate a promise kept and anticipate, anticipate a promise made. So when somebody asks if Crosspoint Fellowship is going to celebrate Advent this year, we absolutely are going to celebrate Advent. 
So we've got uh, five candles up here, and those candles basically represent hope, joy, peace, and love. And then there's a fifth candle that will represent Christ. It's the Christ candle. So basically, over the next uh, four Sundays, I'll cover hope today, um, which I really don't need to cover hope because I feel like the Galleon Smith family pretty much took care of it, so we can all go home. Uh, but I'll cover hope today. Next week, Morris will cover peace, and then uh, love and joy, Greg and Jason will cover that. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll light the Christmas, uh, the Christ candle. And so I think it'd be important to talk about these candles, because I've had several discussions with people about, like, what do the candles mean, and why, why are we doing the candles thing? And I want you to know that these candles are nothing but the finest hunks of wax from Ikea. There is literally nothing special about these. They are like normal candles made directly in Sweden. Um, don't get wrapped around the axle on the candles. The, the sole purpose of the candles is to literally point you to Christ. It's just a symbolism. It's just a, a, a thing to say, okay, this is what those things mean, but ultimately Christ is what we're looking at. Listen, the Swedish folks do something really good. They have Spotify. They have fantastic meatballs. Um, you know, there's obviously Ikea. They make great candles, but it's nothing special. There's nothing special about lighting a candle. So if you come from a different like tradition or a church background or uh, like, I, had, I have no idea what candles are, you know, like this, this, is, this is new to me. Let's not get wrapped around the axle about lighting a candle. There's no magic juju in that or anything like that. And if you're like, maybe your church growing up didn't light candles because it was a fire hazard. Well, that's okay too, because Cross Point Fellowship, we like to live on the edge. And if it does go wrong because this is like greenery, you know, um, and it is actual live greenery, so it will die and probably be a fire hazard. We have firefighters here in our facility. We've got like three or four and a retired one, so um, they are specially trained in rescuing cats from trees and putting out candle mishaps. So we are good to go. Fear not, Crosspoint Fellowship. So with that being said, if you are willing and able, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought it to contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I've got to admit to you guys, I've been preparing for this for a couple of weeks now. And I was preparing, I was like putting together this fantastic sermon on hope, right? I had done this, this awesome word study of what hope means and how how hope is translated in the Old Testament, how hope, what hope looks like in the New Testament, and, and, you know, hope, hope, hope. And I was building this sermon on hope, and then I realized, I don't know, yesterday morning, that I was really just doing a word study on hope. 
And though there was a bunch of biblical truths about it, um, the verses that we're talking about is, is Isaiah 9. And so I would be remiss if we didn't figure out what is going on in Isaiah 9. See, I felt like I was kind of doing exactly what uh, Jason Brown, the real Jason Brown, was talking about last week, which is I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And so the last thing I want to do is take anything out of context. So we are going to spend a few minutes by a few minutes, maybe a few hours into discussing what is going on in Isaiah. Now, if you, I was just kidding about the few hours thing. I didn't get any laughs. Everybody's like, ah. Um, so, so listen, we did a fantastic study of the first part of Isaiah a couple years ago. It was really, really good, really well done. I encourage you if you have any questions about that, because I'm not going to go into that detail, but I am going to fly over it at the 40,000 foot view. If you have questions about Isaiah, come talk to me, come or go visit those sermons. But with that being said, Danielle, can you put that slide up? Beautiful. All right. And you'll have to like leave it up there for a while. So I love visual aesthetics. This is a picture. Uh, if you are not all about geography, that's okay. This is the Middle East in the time of Isaiah. And I'm going to talk about, you can leave it up there for a second or for a while. I'm going to talk about these different regions. And it's really important because Isaiah is talking about uh, a time frame that we don't necessarily understand. And we don't understand it because, and Every time I get up here, I think I'm like the doom and gloom guy. I promise I'm really happy, guys, I promise. But Isaiah uh, is coming from a time where Israel and Judah, and I'll explain that in a second, is just in ruins. It's in a deep, deep, dark place. So what he's saying holds weight that we need to purely understand, and that's what we'll get to. So if you kind of look at this map, and I forgot my handy-dandy laser pointer, but I'm going to be the awkward guy pointing at the wall back here. Um, we've got Judah. Judah's at the bottom, at the southernmost. Then we have Israel. So the kingdom of Israel is actually split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. For all practical purposes, they are all Israel. But at this point in time, they are separated into Judah, which contains Jerusalem, which is the holy city, um, and then Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And then right above Israel, you have Syria, and then even further north and kind of to the east there, you have Assyria. And then you keep on going even further east and you have Babylon. And then down here at the bottom, at the southernmost portion, you have Egypt. And so this is really important. And if you read Isaiah, it's not super clear. You'll notice it's a book on prophecy. So it's not necessarily chronologically in order. So I'm going to do a little bit of jumping around, but I think it's really important to explain kind of what's going on. So you've got, let's talk about Israel, the northern kingdom first. Okay, it's kind of a dark time, but there is a country right above it called Syria. And Syria is now the world power. Okay, it used to be Egypt, now it's Syria. Syria is the world power. Well, they're right next to Israel. So they're basically knocking on the door of Israel. They would love nothing more than to take the land that God gave the Israelites away from them. So being so scared that that's going to happen... Israel actually went to the leadership of Assyria. They went to big brother Assyria. Now, two things to keep in mind, Syria and Assyria, two very different places, Syria and Assyria worship pagan gods. They are not God's chosen people. They are um, pagans for all practical purposes. So Israel went to Assyria to ask for help to gang up on the Syrians. So they did. They made a pact. 
Basically, Israel made a deal with the devil, and the devil was Assyria at that time. And it worked, okay? Syria no longer was a world power. They, they kind of conquered Syria. Syria kind of retreated. They kind of went inward. But in doing so, they created a power vacuum. And that power vacuum was kind of taken over by Assyria. I enunciate the uh because Syria and Assyria. But Assyria. So now we have this blatant, rebellious, against God kingdom, Assyria, who is taking over the known world at this time. They took over the land of Syria, and then they double-crossed and duped Israel and took over the northern kingdom of Israel. They came in and just kind of laid waste to that. So we've got this massive amount of turmoil. But if you look geographically, the northern kingdom just so happens to be located just above the southern kingdom, right? It's kind of the way geography works. And so they're right next to Jerusalem, the holy city. So if you control the land next to somebody on the border, you're going to be very, very close. As a matter of fact, within eight miles. So you've got this massive Assyrian army of about 200,000 people, give or take. Actually, 185,000 is what the Bible tells us, right next door to Judah, so the whole, the whole, both northern and southern kingdom of Israel are absolutely on the brink of war or in war or captive. And so uh, they decide, being they being Judah, decide to go to Egypt and get some of the, um, get some of the leaders of Egypt and kind of do a deal with Egypt to help them out. So they want to go make a pact with, with, with uh, Egypt, who used to be a world power, but it's kind of on a decline. And you've got the prophet Isaiah kind of speaking up saying, this is a bad idea. God says he will protect his people. God says he will protect us. Why are we kind of trusting in these foreign governments? What are we doing? And as a matter of fact, in Isaiah 31.1, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt to help who rely on horses, who trust in multitudes of their chariots, and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look for the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So Isaiah is saying, why are you guys not seeking help from the Lord? Why are you looking into their massive strength of their armies and their chariots? And then one verse later in Isaiah 31.3, it says, But the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. He who has helped will fall. Both will perish together. So Judah would love to go sit at the cool kids table with Egypt and gang up on Syria. Isaiah is saying this is a terrible, terrible idea. Well, luckily it kind of works out that Egypt is in no place to help out Judah because they're on the decline of power. But this guy named King Ahaz comes about, and I know this is like going to get lost in names, but it's going to be fun. We're going to have a good time. Uh, this guy named King Ahaz comes out in Judah as ruler of Judah, and he says, well, if you can't beat them, why not join them? So he would love to go join Assyria to protect what little land they have, specifically the city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah goes to him and says, this is a terrible idea. The northern kingdom learned this. We're about to learn this. We learned this when we tried to get in, you know, in cahoots with Egypt 
This is a bad, bad idea. And King Ahaz wasn't having it, wasn't having it at all. So he decided to join Assyria. So not only did he join Assyria, but he started paying taxes and tribute to Assyria. He sent Israelites to Assyria to learn what they were worshiping and how they were worshiping so that, that they could bring that back to Jerusalem and worship the same gods as Assyria. Um, they basically gave Assyria free rights to do anything as long as the southern kingdom Judah kept their land and kept Jerusalem. So again, uh, Israel being Judah made a deal with the devil. And again, the devil was that Assyrian rule. Well, uh, Ahaz, you know, does what people do. He died. And his son, Hezekiah, came about. Now, King Hezekiah was amazing, an incredible ruler of, of southern, the southern kingdom of Judah. He was absolutely fantastic. And he said, enough is enough. We won't worship foreign gods here. We only serve our God. We won't pay any more taxes. We won't give them free reign to do whatever they want. Assyria, you are done. So that naturally made Assyria really upset. So Assyria came to siege Jerusalem, and they sent that 185,000 troop people to come literally on the doorsteps of Jerusalem to lay siege to the city. And it's a pretty cool little story. Um, and again, I'm jumping kind of all over Isaiah, and, if, if, and I encourage you to study it. It's a, it's a really cool story. But one of the more comical uh, parts of the story was when the commanders of Assyria are outside the Jerusalem walls, literally about to get ready to siege this place, and they're yelling in Hebrew into the city. Now, Israel and Judah, they speak Hebrew, as one would think. In Assyria, they speak Aramaic. So the Assyrians were speaking the Hebrew language to Jerusalem so they would basically understand what was going on. They're like shouting these, like, like we're coming for you, we're coming for you. And these, uh, these Hebrew, these Israel commanders were like, hey guys, do you mind actually speaking in Aramaic so that most people won't understand? You're kind of scaring people. Um, and obviously the Assyrians were like, well, that's the point. So we're going to speak in Hebrew. And it says in chapter 36, uh, verse 18 through 20, do not let Hezekiah mislead you when, you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of uh, Sepharavim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods in these countries has been able to save this land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So you've got the leader of Assyria screaming into Jerusalem, don't listen to your king. He is feeding you just a load of lies because I vanquished all the northern kingdom. I vanquished Syria. I vanquished everything around Assyria. And they all said the same thing oh, my, my God of stone or my God of whatever will save us. Well, don't listen to Hezekiah because he's saying that the Lord, your God, will deliver you. And uh, I think this is hysterical because obviously the king of Assyria done messed up bad. I mean, bad. So in, verses, so in, verse, or in uh, chapter 37 of Isaiah, there's this big, long monologue that God gives about how um, 
the Assyrian king done messed up real bad. And then it kind of ends with this pinnacle statement in Isaiah 37, 36 through 38 of the account of what actually happens in Jerusalem right after this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men of the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were dead bodies. So Senechlecha, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in his temple, the god of Nisrosh, his son Abramelech and Sherazer cut, cut him down with a sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Esarjah, his son, succeeded him as king. So the important thing to note here is we have the most powerful kingdom in the current world basically shouting into Jerusalem, the most holy city, that their God is not going to deliver them, and God shows up. He lays waste. He annihilates 185,000 people to protect his people. And not only that, he made an absolute fool of the most powerful ruler of the land. Well, as as people do, and specifically if you read the Old Testament, as Israel does, we have very, very short-term memories. Very short-term memories. Almost on the eve of that amazing deliverance that God offered, that, oh, by the way, the people had nothing to do with. God did all the heavy lifting. God did all the work. They found themselves scared again. They found themselves in terrible fear again. And out of that power vacuum, since Assyria was absolutely vanquished at the Lord's hand, came a really small uh, country called Babylon. And if you know anything about church history, that's where we get the exile, right? That is the darkest moment, one of the darkest moments in, in Israel's history for sure, is the exile. Now, exile basically meaning displaced, right? Where all of Israel, where the people of Israel were displaced and put into slavery into Babylon, and I'm not going to go there, um, but it is definitely worth the research. But the important thing to note here is that we as a people just have a complete short-term memory. Isaiah 1, 21 pretty much sums it up. It says, How the faithful city has become a prostitute, and she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. We're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about a city that's called the Virgin of Zion. We're talking about the city that is literally the Mecca, the most holy place, now doing everything they can to wheel and deal with other countries, with Assyria, Egypt, Assyria again, and, and now Babylon, just to stay safe. They're basically hoping in all these things. They're hoping in this protection. They're hoping in the great trade agreements that they're going to get. They're hoping in the money that's going to come in from these countries, as well as the money that is outflowing to these countries for protection. They're hoping in all those things when Isaiah the whole time is screaming, our God will protect us. We just have to hope in him. We just have to trust in him. So the backdrop Isaiah is absolutely bleak. It's absolutely bleak. 
Isaiah goes through about five kings in his time. He lived a pretty long time. He goes through about five kings. Some were great, some were terrible, some were okay. He went through Uzziah and Hezekiah, who were amazing. He went through Jotham, who was just mediocre at best. And then he went through Ahaz and Manasseh, who were awful. And Manasseh was the last one. And, and there's a verse in Hebrew that talks about uh, the prophets, specifically Isaiah, being sawn in two. And so that's kind of what happened to Isaiah. A little bit bleak, but Isaiah was kind of in a mess with his people, specifically in Judah, but as well as the northern kingdom of Israel. So now that we have the backdrop, let's go ahead and go to our text. And I'm going to do this exactly like I've done uh, before. I'm just going to read the verses, and I'm going to uh, pick out specific phrases and just kind of tell you exactly what they mean. Because let's be honest, you really have to do a ton of research to figure out what Isaiah is actually talking about. So Isaiah, verses, or Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who, has, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What does that mean? Her who is in anguish is talking about Israel. Nothing specific about it. It's talking about Israel, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, Israel. Those words in the former time, here we have Isaiah in full prophecy mode. So the way Isaiah prophesied was he would go way into the future and look back onto the times that he was currently in as if they were already gone. So Isaiah is in full-on prophecy mode right now. And he talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Here referring to the northern kingdom. And if the map was up there, the northern kingdom of Israel is basically where it borders that Syria and Assyrian empire. The northern kingdom of what Moses would call the promised land. And that northern kingdom is actually what got hit first. The invaders came from the north. So that was the land that was humiliated and desolate first. And oh yeah, by the way, it talks about this glorious era that would be started. Out of that era, out of Galilee, that's where the Messiah would come. So I don't think it should be lost on us that the land that was desolate first, that the land that got annihilated first, that the land that got humiliated first is exactly where the Messiah would start his journey. And that's where the light would start coming into the world. So let's go ahead and pick up in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. See, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 5, if you flip over a couple of pages, it says, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That is a prophet pleading to his people. That is a prophet pleading, saying, we are walking in darkness. We are trusting in other things. We are not trusting in our God. Please, please, let's walk in the light of the Lord. And obviously, as you heard the story of Isaiah, and if you heard any type of really story from the Old Testament, that is certainly not the case at all. That, that thing got busted nine ways to Sunday for sure. But here in verse 2, Isaiah prophesies that people who walked in darkness, those jokers that didn't listen to Isaiah in chapter 2, verses 5, those very same people, he's saying they will see light. 
He's saying God's people who continually sought other things, money, land, judges, kings, safety. Basically, they, thought they sought everything except for the one true God, the one true God. And on them, they will see a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, those people who can't get anything right, on them, a great light has shined. And so I don't think it's a far stretch to figure out what this great light is, right? And so that's why I was saying that the, the Smiths and Galleons kind of ruined everything for me. So thanks for that, guys. But it's not a big stretch. If you've been in church at all, you kind of know what is coming next. This isn't a big reveal. This isn't some like big theological gymnastics to get there. But just so we're all on the same exact page, if you look down a few verses to, to verse 6, and Morris will cover this next week when he talks about uh, the, the peace candle, but just so we know exactly where we're going, verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and a government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That is the great light that we're talking about here. Let's not get confused. That is the great light we're talking about. That is the one who will shine on those in darkness. Isaiah here is prophesying that hope is coming, that there's good news coming. Isaiah is looking forward to Emmanuel, God with us, coming in the flesh. That is what Isaiah is looking forward to. And that is what I, Advent, when, whenever I'm talking about Matt Chandler saying, to climb into the story of the Israelites, putting ourselves in that story where Isaiah is begging and pleading and pining for and hoping for one that would, be, that would come and be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us. So we kind of made it. We made it through, through the history portion of it. And I, uh, I promise I won't like divulge history every time I get up here. And I didn't even make a timeline this time. So that's exciting. I actually did make a timeline, but I'm skipping it. So I, I want to get you guys home maybe uh, to enjoy a little bit of family time. But I'm going to go ahead and go into application. Three small, cheesy application points. But stick with me. It'll be good. First one. Don't hope in the wrong things. Don't hope in the wrong things. It's simple. It's not groundbreaking at all. As Christians, we're not exactly like those Old Testament folks. We're not exactly like the people of Judah, but we're really, really similar. We're really similar. We are God's chosen people, and we are often tempted individually as well as corporately to put our trust in the wrong things. So the charge is simple. Don't put your trust in the wrong things. Listen, I'm sure the king of Egypt, and I'm sure the king of Assyria, I'm sure the king of Babylon were great. I'm sure they had fantastic parties. I'm sure they had all the cool toys. I'm sure for a small time, it was a really, really good deal. But time would tell otherwise. And man, it would definitely tell otherwise. So, people of God, what are we putting our hope in? What are we putting our hope in as people? Are we putting our hope in government leaders? 
Are we putting hope in ourselves and our own strength? Are we putting hope in the Amazon delivery guy? I know it's the Christmas season, so we like, in the pain household, we're like, okay, where's the Amazon delivery guy? It's got to be here. It's got to be here. Got to be here. Are we putting hope in a God that, or in a job that provides bills so that we can pay? Are we putting our hope in some sports team that plays on Thanksgiving Day that will let you down every single time? I'm not bitter at all, I promise. Are we putting hope in our spouse? Are we putting our hope in having a perfect family where the kids just are super quiet? We have a white picket fence and a couple of dogs. Is that what we're putting our hope in? Now, it's easy to say, well, no, Neil, I'm not putting my hope in that. Listen, I'm not talking about the big picture here. I'm not putting, I'm not talking about this big picture because if I went and asked every single person in here, what do you put your hope in? you would likely answer Jesus, of course. Absolutely. That's the right answer. That's the, that's the answer I learned in eighth grade or when I was eight years old, or that's the answer that I learned when I turned 45 and gave my life to Christ. Whatever it is, that's the right answer you learned. I'm talking about on Tuesday when the kids are yelling and the dogs are barking and the refrigerator is broke. Okay, What are you hoping for in those moments? Because if you're not hoping in a good, good God, those moments grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. So be cognizant of what you're putting your hope in, minute by minute, hour by hour. What are we putting our hope in as a church? As corporately, as a church, as a people, what are we putting our hope in? Is it the most amazing sound equipment? And listen, we've got the best worship band on earth, hands down, no doubt. But we don't put our hope in that, right? Are we putting our hope in the most amazing building restoration? And listen, our building needs some restoration. Walk around, don't kick over too many rocks. I promise you won't like what you see. But we need some restorations. But we shouldn't be putting our hope in that. Are we putting our hope in a new lead pastor? That's a big one, right? And I think it's important to realize that no matter how great all those things are, there is nothing wrong with the Amazon delivery man or an amazing lead pastor, but they will let us down every single time, time and time again, every single time. So, so I guess the charge here is let's do an honest self-assessment. Let's do an honest self-assessment of what we are hoping in. Cool. Next one. Our hope should be in God. And again, I said these are cheesy. This is an absolute lob. This is, this is theology 101, 201, 301. Like this is a run play before you do spread offense, okay? But I think we need to visit that every, every so often. Some of you that know nothing about football just glazed over. Sorry about that. So our hope should be in God. When Jerusalem had no other hope, God came to be their helper. When Assyria was literally banging on their door, God came and laid waste to everyone. And that is a very, very real story. It is not J.R. Tolkien's Hobbit or anything like that. That is a very, very real story that happened to real people. God is not like the other kings of Assyria, of Egypt, of Babylon. He is not even like those false idols. He's not like the best friend that treated you poorly in high school. Okay, He's definitely not like those things at all. He, he's definitely not even like the imperfect parents that you had or have. God is not like that at all. He is trustworthy. He has a proven track record, and it is perfect. 
He proved it over 1,500 years of the Old Testament, and he has certainly proved it over 34 years of Neil Payne's life. He is proven and perfect. And yes, God is absolutely the solution for people's trust problems, but he sharpens that focus even more. He kind of hones it in even more. The solution, is, the solution isn't just to say, God. The solution isn't just to say, God, because we can't do that. We can't do that at all. How can a God that is perfect and just and holy be in communion with the people that are in open rebellion towards him? It doesn't work. The two don't mesh. The actual foundation of the hope for his people comes in a person. It comes in a person. It comes in a wonderful counselor. It comes in a mighty God an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. As you read through the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah, it becomes very clear that God's great plan for his people and for the world narrows into one person. Isaiah 28, 16 says this. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. You see application number three, the solution for that darkness that we talked about in Isaiah is hope in Christ. All of our, all of our hearts appear to have a built-in desire to hope and trust in some individual, someone that we can know, someone who can know us, or someone who we put kind of on a pedestal, whether that be a presidential candidate or the Dallas Cowboys. It seems we have this innate ability or this innate desire to look into one individual and, and worship that person. God's solution for that darkness is not simply an abstract or unfocused picture of himself as deliverer. It is a focused picture of a person, a servant, this servant who listened to God perfectly, yet suffered and is rejected in order to bear the sins of God's people. In Christ, God became man, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, taking, taking on the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. We look to and hope in the servant who bore our sins and who will one day come back to reign victoriously as King of kings and of Lord of lords. That's who we hope in this season. Dever says it this way, and, and Mark Dever uh, in his commentary has a fantastic fly, uh, flyover view of Isaiah, and he kind of summarizes it like this. This is a book, or this, this entire book is all about God's love for his people. It isn't about people's love for him. As with God in the Old Testament, people, our only, hope in God's our only hope is in tenacious, pursuing love for us, which we see displayed most remarkably in Christ. We did not go and pull Jesus down from heaven. He came to us. We didn't go pull Jesus down. We didn't do anything for this. He came to us and met us where we are. He took on flesh. He went to the cross. He died, bearing the iniquity of his people. And in three days, he rose. And he will come back again. 
There's no fact to that, or there, there is absolute fact to that. He will come back again, and he will gather his people, and he will establish his rule. Isaiah 9, 2, again, just so, we, just so we're familiar. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This book is all about God's love for his people. It has very little, little to do with, his, with people's love for him. As a matter of fact, it's almost quite the opposite. Look at our history. Take a picture of a snapshot of ourselves. And after everything we have done, after everything, the, after the darkness that we walked in, God still showed his love for us in this. He sent his son to die for us. That is the hope that we're putting in this season. Not in awesome gifts, not in crazy families or, or the Amazon delivery guy. That is what we're putting our hope in. We put our hope in him this morning. We put our hope in him on Tuesday morning and on Wednesday afternoon. That is who we're putting our hope in. So when the world starts getting crazy this season and it starts closing in, remember whom we are putting our hope in. Don't let the business of the season get the best of us. So let's all take a second, slow down, take a breather, and anticipate and hope. Let's pray. God, you are such a good, good father. God, you are incredible. We are so thankful for this Advent season. We ask that you reveal the sin that we need to deal with, God. We ask that you bring that sin to light in our lives and help us deal with it. We ask that you help us fight the urge to hope in something shiny and shimmery. Tis the season for good gifts, God, but you're the best gift. God, help us fix our gaze on you. You authored and perfected our faith, Father. Help us to be attentive to your Holy Spirit and to guide us as we move. God, thank you for sending your son all those years ago to reconcile us. Help us to pine for his return to make the world new again, all the while making his name great in the present. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So here in a second, band's going to play a song. We're going to go grab the supper. There will be a couple of elders manning the supper. So if you're trusting in Christ, go grab one. Notice, new and improved, we do have a gluten-free option for all you gluten-free people. This is like a, this is different, right? So you got to turn it upside down, grab this, grab the thing out of the top, then drink the thing. You got it. If you are, uh, if you're not gluten-free, don't take one. Those things are expensive, okay? I promise they taste just as terrible as the other ones, but that's not what it's about. So you guys are up.